Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take an in-depth look about what it means to call Jesus the Wonderful Counselor. What responsibilities do lawyers have in the kingdom of God? We explore this question with John Malk, author of the new book, Jesus in the Courtroom. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is attorney and author John Malk. His law practice focuses on religious freedom cases, in particular cases involving religious land use. John Malk is a senior partner at the Chicago law firm of Malk and Baker. For nine years, he served as a board member of the Christian Legal Society, and he's currently an allied attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom. He is also a co-host of the weekly radio show Lawyers for Jesus. We discussed Malk's legal work in a previous Things Not Seen interview, The Miracle on Capitol Hill. In that interview, we talked about the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or ARLUPA. John Malk has written a new book, Jesus in the Courtroom, How Believers Can Engage the Legal System for the Good of His World. John Malk, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Oh, good to be here, Dave. For those that haven't heard our earlier interview, let's talk a little bit about your current law practice. You work on religious freedom and religious land use. What do both of those terms mean? Well, religious freedom means the ability to pursue what you feel God wants you to do in life, in, in the broadest sense. And uh, in the constitutional sense, the, the phrase is free exercise of religion. Uh, Congress shall not and the state shall not uh, prohibit the free exercise of religion. And the exercise of religion equates to the same thing, doing what God has called you to do. Now, land use is integral because when you think about it, most religious exercise involves interacting with other people. Sure, you can pray privately, but you can do that in communist Russia or, or even North Korea because they don't know what you're thinking. But learning from others, teaching others, praying with others, praising God, uh, taking communion, baptism, all those different things require almost always a building. I guess you, I guess you could get baptized out by, by the creek, but uh, for the most part, you need to come together. People need to assemble, and that's much of religion is corporate. And so land use is a means of allowing people to come together. And in totalitarian societies, if they want to shut down believers, shut down the church, they just don't let them meet. They, they take away their buildings, they confiscate their buildings, and we have the problem in the U.S. that zoning laws have so restricted the ability of believers to get together and 
buy a building or convert an old Walmart or, or otherwise uh, use a property for worship that they've been thwarted and, and congregations have been thwarted and particularly new groups coming to the U.S., uh, Koreans, Mexicans, and, and non, non-Christian groups too. We represent uh, them too because they need a place to come together so they can share their faith and teach it. And I've, I've heard it said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that in your law practice, you don't often think of yourself as a lawyer, but rather more as a servant of God who just happens to be a person practicing the law. Is that a fair characterization? Well, it is. And, and I think, isn't that where we should all be? I mean, if, if we're serving God first, our creator, he's made us, he's given us a purpose in life, and that's what we need, need to find out what what to do. So my purpose in life is to serve him. And at least for the time being, he's been having me practice law. Well, the time being has been over 30 years. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, over 40. <laughs> okay. Goodness gracious. But I'm also interested because in that time, you've not only been a, a, a practicing lawyer, but also you have been involved in a Bible study. Is that correct as well? Well, many Bible studies, but we've had a wonderful one here at the office every Friday for about 40 years. Uh, consisting mainly of lawyers. I've been often a student because we had a good friend from Jews for Jesus uh, teach it for many years, but I and some of my other partners have been teaching it uh, recently. And it's, it's wonderful because we get people who are committed to following the Lord and curious, or, or curious about following the Lord from all over the downtown area will come. Um, sometimes it's 10, 15 people. Uh, every Friday, and we'll go through the book of the a book of the Bible, and ask how does it apply to practicing law, or how does it apply to my life today? And you mentioned the Jews for Jesus. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that organization, what is it, and what is its purpose? Well, well, Jews for Jesus is an organization of primarily Jewish people who have come to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and have decided to spread the message that uh, they're missionaries uh, here within the U.S., uh, primarily to reach other Jewish people. Uh, my my dear f- friend who taught for many years said having a Bible study downtown will be a good place to connect so that he could uh, meet Jewish people who were interested in who is Jesus and, and wanting to, to know the, the truth and that's what a missionary does, is take the opportunity to share the gospel. And so that sort of brings us then into, into some of the aspects of what you're talking about in your new book. And for our listeners, the book is called Jesus in the Courtroom, How Believers Can Engage the Legal System for the Good of His World. And one of the things that jumped out to me in reading this book was you pick up the characterization that the Bible gives to Jesus, wonderful counselor. <laughs> I sure do. And, <laughs> and he is wonderful. <laughs> he is wonderful. And, and But you also make much of, of him being called a counselor. Now, explain to our listeners how you understand that particular term, as opposed to how, I guess, maybe some listeners may have heard it in the past. Well, I, I take the aspect of counselor much more as a lawyer, as attorney, and that that creates a little cognitive dissonance in people and saying hey, i'm not I'm not too comfortable with Jesus as an attorney as a counselor sort of giving advice, but an attorney is an advocate is somebody who's going in and working hard for you as well as advising you now i'm I'm taking this from isaiah nine six 
which is, first of all, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, for unto you a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, wonderful things. But the word, the Hebrew word is uh, for counselor is ya'atz, and that word is used in Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah said, where God speaking to Jerusalem says, you were a city of unfaithfulness and injustice, but I will restore your justice. I will restore your judges as at the first and your yaats. Now, people are translating that counselors, which is not bad, but it's not the best. If you're going to restore judges and a judicial system and, and you'll be called a city of righteousness, these yaats are lawyers. We've always had lawyers. Uh, the translators are a little tentative about using that word. But the point is, Jesus is a lawyer. He's a law professor. He's a teacher of the law. The word rabbi, which people are more familiar with, brings immediate association of a leader of a synagogue. But that's not the biblical primary usage. So for our listeners, they didn't become leaders of synagogues until almost the fourth century in the common era when sort of the things changed. But at the time, they were much more involved in legal battles, weren't they? Well, the rabbi was a teacher of the law uh, to his disciples, his law students. Jesus had a a law student class um, and uh, teachers of the law to others. The Pharisees and Sadducees were, were constantly told were the religious leaders of the day, and that's a, that's a little bit inaccurate. They were the political leaders of the day, and they were the legal system of the day. The religious system of the day centered on the temple and the high priest. Now, they didn't separate uh, church and state, so to speak, as we do today, so they are mixed together. But these Pharisees and Sadducees reviewed the law, they applied the law, they made regulations, they interpreted the law, they came up with new traditions, uh, they, they managed the Sanhedrin and staffed the Sanhedrin, which was the chief tribunal. Also, throughout Israel at the time of Jesus, there were small Sanhedrins in every community. They were, they were the local municipal courts. The disputes had to be uh, adjudicated, and they were called Sanhedrins and the Pharisees and Sadducees, according to Torah, according to God's law, administered justice, and that was the legal system. My point in, in this and in, in, the, in the book, Jesus in the Courtroom, is if we want to understand Jesus' strategy to impact Israel for the kingdom of God— He went to the legal system. He went to the lawyers, the judges, the law professors, the law students, primarily. doesn't mean he didn't love the uh, Syrophoenician woman, David, uh, or or the centurion, but he had a laser focus on his ministry to Israel, to the Jews, and within that, he targeted the legal system. And so we need to understand he wasn't targeting the religious system order, so to speak, he he was targeting the religious, I mean, the legal system, so that if we're going to follow him and and say, how do we apply what Jesus did and taught in the U.S. today, we have to reorient and think about, we got to reach these lawyers because they're making a mess of our society. And I think all of your listeners know 
a lot of the problems that the, the law has created because people don't know God or don't see God as the ultimate authority for law. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauck, a Chicago attorney who specializes in religious land use and religious freedom litigation. We're discussing his recent book, Jesus in the Courtroom. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks. If you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you might have figured out that I'm a bit of an odd mix. I'm lefty and progressive in my politics, and I'm conservative and traditional in my theology. I'm a full gospel, Acts 4 and 5 kind of guy. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a new degree program being offered by my friends at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. It's their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. Hey, I'm in touch with listeners, and I know a lot of you are serving your communities in nonprofits and civic organizations. Some of you are even on the front lines as activists and organizers. You're trying to make the world a better place. The folks at Garrett want to make this world a better place, too, and they know the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to that effort. If you've been wanting to integrate your faith with your work, you'll want to check out their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. The entire city of Chicago will be your classroom. You'll graduate with a stronger network and a better understanding of how Jesus Christ is speaking to the world of today. Get excited about this. This could be your next step. Go to garrett.edu slash MAPM, the initials of Master of Arts in Public Ministry. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. Tell Katie and Jill I sent you. They're good people, and they'll be glad to tell you more about the new Master of Arts in Public Ministry from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Once again, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauck, a Chicago attorney who specializes in religious land use and religious freedom litigation. We discussed Mauck's legal work in a previous Things Not Seen interview, The Miracle on Capitol Hill. In that interview, we talked about the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or ARLUPA. This, this law has freed up congregations all over the country to expand, uh, to have programs for the homeless, to uh, convert buildings that were former warehouses into places where the praises of God are ringing uh, for groups uh, of immigrants who are coming here and looking for a place to, uh, to worship. And there's really been a flourishing of fervent churches, although there are lots of churches that aren't so fervent that have plenty of space, but the ones that are growing need space, and they, they're able to get it because of this Religious Land Use Act. And the prayers of, I, I, I use the word anawim, which means little people, or blessed are the meek, uh, this is the word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you're talking about gardeners and uh, busboys and uh, uh, the hunger and thirst for righteousness. The point being, Dave, you don't have to be a lawyer. You just have to love God. And anybody who's listening can love God totally with their whole heart and then let God show them how to be engaged. John, in your earlier book, Paul on Trial, you make uh, the argument that the book of Acts is largely to be read as a legal brief. And I'm, I follow you in that argument, and it's a wonderful book, but I'm wondering where you see specifically Jesus acting as a lawyer or an advocate. Can you give us some examples from Scripture? Well, yes. I think uh, earlier I talked about he defended his disciples, uh, but one of our favorites I think of everybody's is when the woman is caught in adultery and she's dragged uh, before him and, and the uh, 
Pharisees say, well, the law says she's to be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? And uh, Jesus pauses, uh, writes in the sand, and then says, let you without sin cast the first stone. Well, this is really a legal defense. He is, he is disqualifying the accusers. And according to Deuteronomy, if you're a hostile witness, a witness who's coming to do harm, you can suffer the same punishment of the person you're accusing. And I think most people have heard the sermon, well, where was the guy? You know, you're smiling. Right, we all smile. It was... Uh, if if she was caught in adultery, she should have. They should have brought the guy too. She didn't get there alone. <laughs> um, so th- this was a setup, and and the scripture says it was a setup. They were trying to trap him, but um, because they were sinners themselves, and because of their motivation, they faced uh, the same penalty, which would have been uh, been stoning, and so. Um, Jesus, being the God of mercy, of course, had mercy on them, saying, well, uh, go ahead, take, take it a step further. And uh, they realized, uh, starting from the most mature, I guess, the oldest, it says, they, they dropped their stones and walked away. And then he changes from being lawyer to judge. He says, uh, young woman or lady, is there anyone to accuse you? Uh, no, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So uh, there's always a place. People think the the Hebrew law is harsh with the stoning. There's always a place for mercy and forgiveness under God's law. That's that's who Jesus is about. That's the sacrificial system. People committed grave sins. They look at David. And his sins, and 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 others, murderers. Um, everyone can be forgiven if they repent. And so, yeah, he's he's acting as a lawyer on on uh, several occasions, and uh, as a law professor instructing on the law. The Pharisees come to him and say, uh, Rabbi, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, that's been a little confused in our church traditions, but they're really asking, when they say, is it lawful, they say, is it according to Torah? And Jesus answers them, according to Torah, um, explaining a a dispute uh, within Torah and an ambiguity um, that that people took different sides on, and he he settles the issue definitively, but he's teaching on the law continually what does God say and when he's saying what does God say it's really saying what is Torah what is the law there's a contemporary legal principle called restorative justice uh, where a person is not just punished for a crime but there is an attempt made to reintegrate that person into community and to sort of live the consequences but also make amends for the consequences When we hear about the way that Jesus is acting as a legal force in ancient times, do we see a sort of sort of philosophy of restoration and restorative justice in addition to punishment and accusation? Well, yes, we see it in Jesus. I think throughout Scripture, and it's God's 
God's way. Uh, when Micah uh, writes that we're to uh, do, do act justly, love mercy, he puts justice first because you've got to have justice first. Uh, otherwise, your society breaks down. But once you have justice, you have to temper it with mercy. And then he goes on to say, and walking humbly with your Lord and, and, and humility and how we, how we apply that. And the, the, the example we talked about with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery illustrates that. He didn't say that adultery was right. He didn't say that the law was wrong to say that it's an act that leads to death. It could be, it could be stoning, but there are plenty of acts that lead, lead to death. He didn't want to stone anybody. We want repentance and restoration. And so that's, that's who Jesus is, and that's what restorative justice is. Uh, we just have to be careful when we have these concepts flowing around that we, we line them up with Scripture, we're humble about it, and we're merciful in, a, in our application because people are hijacking the law all the time, and they're hijacking legal reform for their agendas. And I dare say probably even those of us <laughs> who consider ourselves you know, defenders of the faith and so forth, we all, we all have tendencies to insert our own agendas in, into it. That's, that's why it's good we have systems really to, uh, to temper our, our ideologies and, and give us humility as we seek to, to follow the Lord. Well, the the practice of law in America is over overshadowed in many ways by the First Amendment, and there are those in contemporary times that have assumed from from the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court and others that that means that the the application of law has to be secular or it has to be denatured from all kind of religious grounding and basis. My sense, John, is that you would disagree with that. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty a narrow view uh, that you can separate law from morality because law is effectively moral. Let's start with the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall have no other God before me, but you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not bear false witness. Uh, these are universal principles. They're moral principles. And they're religious principles. If you look at it, they come from the Ten Ten Commandments. So more, are you, the argument that we have to divorce uh, morality and religion, and I'm equating the two because they are closely aligned, uh, from law is kind of silly when you when you think about it. I think people who who want to keep all morality out really don't understand what the source is. And this is part of the challenge for believers today. It's to help. You talked about restorative justice. I think restorative idea that God is on the throne. God is the creator. That's why I'm, th I'm thrilled about all of these uh, new discoveries in science that are pointing to creative, uh, to a uh, creator designer, that uh, creation science is, sh is showing us that we didn't just evolve randomly, that the universe didn't appear out of nothing, 
but that it was essentially created by God speaking it into existence. That's what the scripture says, and that's what the Big Bang says. <laughs> they're, they're, they're awfully closely aligned. And, and, and so as, as we acknowledge intelligent design, then it leads us to ask questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Uh, what is the legal system? How does that apply? How do we take the legal system and and make sure it operates justly? This is this is a privilege God has given us, but it's not just oh you're the you're the czar John or you're the czar David and write whatever laws we have to we have to be humble. We have to learn to work with other believers. We have to work with non-believers and talk about what is justice and fairness and in this particular situation. So it's, it's a great opportunity to be a lawyer today, even though believers are in the minority and we're, we're facing a legal system called positivism that says man creates law and man is the ultimate authority for law. Now that's just dead wrong, and that's why I brought uh, creation science uh, into the picture. God created us all, and we can argue for that, and we should argue for that in the public square. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Malk, a Chicago attorney who specializes in religious land use and religious freedom litigation. We're discussing his recent book, Jesus in the Courtroom, How Believers Can Engage the Legal System for the Good of His World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with John Mauck. He's a Chicago-based attorney who specializes in religious land use and religious freedom litigation. We're discussing his recent book, Jesus in the Courtroom. So I want to talk for a second about Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, for my listeners who don't know, started out as a religious quietist. He believed that we should withdraw in many ways from culture and we should not engage with culture, but then his son and some others sort of enlivened him and activated him, and he became sort of the unseen motor force behind a great deal of what the last 40 years have brought us. So he he started out with making a movie series with his son, How Then Shall We Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. And so... I'm going to sort of pose to you the Francis Schaeffer question, because he stood on both sides of this divide. Stand back from the culture and just have an enclave of believers who are strengthening one another, what would nowadays be called the Benedict Option, or engage with the culture and try and shape and change the culture towards God's ends. Which side do you come down on, John Malk? Well, I, I would have to say that Benedict option, I think, is appropriate when we go home at night. <laughs> we should have our family in order, and hopefully our, our spouse is a believer, and we can hug her and, and uh, have the kids climb on us and, and, uh, and be free. And, and also, 
uh, when we go to worship at our congregations. Uh, there's that aspect of it. But I don't see that Jesus uh, was a full-time Benedictine, I, <laughs> if I can put that on the Benedictines or not. But uh, he withdrew occasionally when he needed a retreat and, and, and quiet. But for the most part, he was engaged. He was actively engaged. He went to the legal system. He went to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He debated them. He went to the temple courts on the Festival of Lights, what we call Hanukkah. He stood up and probably lifted his candle and said, I am the light of the world. And he said that in front of the whole mass there of, of crowded people. I don't think that was a Benedict option. <laughs> and I, I guess I'd, I'd say we probably need to follow Jesus in being engaged because we need to look at our tendency to avoid conflict. And this is strong among Christians, conflict avoidance. Well, nobody likes conflict. I don't like conflict. Do you? No, oh, I, I try a... and avoid it when I can. Yeah, yeah. But God has given us conflict to help us grow. And so we need to rightly understand when we have to address conflict, when we have to turn the other cheek, but when we have to speak uh, a strong word, as Jesus uh, spoke to uh, some of the, the priests. He said, you are, you are whitewashed sepulchers. Well, uh, God is love, and I assume they said that in love, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it's a hard word. So we need to be brought into maturity and at the same time understand who we are in our personalities and our, in our groups and our, our proper role. But I guess for the most part, we need to be more towards the activist engaged part. That's why that's the subtitle of the book, How Believers Can Engage for the Benefit of God's World. Because I think for the most part, he wants us to engage and we just disengage to the extent that we need to refresh. Well, but there's also a sort of a, a counterbalance against that. And, and if we look at the last 40 years and the alliance of the religious right with the Republican Party particularly, they've shown up to vote, and then the Republican Party has oftentimes not delivered on the things that the religious right has wanted. If we think about uh, legislation against Roe v. Wade or other sorts of, of legislation that has a moral basis, oftentimes the activist Christians have been duped or used and so I'm then asking you as a person who's advocating for action in the public square on the part of believers, how do believers protect themselves against being exploited for political purposes when they are political? Yeah, that's, that's a tough question because I think there will always be a tendency to exploit the, uh, the affections of, of, of Christians and say, oh, Christians are, are with me, vote, vote for me. So we, we have to be engaged, but, but not selling out. Uh, we're serving God. We're not serving the Republican Party. And I'm, I'm a Democrat the minute Democrats become pro-life. <laughs> well, then, if we, if we think about, because a, a good many of the people listening will not be attorneys. They won't have law degrees. But you, you speak in the, in the book that you very much want us to understand that Jesus has a legal ministry both to us and through us. And I'm, I'm interested in sort of how 
our, our listeners who are not involved directly in the legal system can live this ministry or can reflect this in some way? How can they become more active if they wish to be? Well, in one, one chapter, the chapter has got special people. It's about our little ones and uh, our little ones in the womb, our little ones uh, in cases of adoption, uh, custody, foster care, our little ones in primary school or going to Christian schools or charter schools, alternative education. So I, I, I make the point that if you're a policeman or if you're a teacher or if you're a nurse, are you keeping track here? Mm-hmm. Or if you're a parent, or if you're a grandparent, or if you're a voter, or if you're a pastor, uh, the list goes on. Your life intersects with children and these legal issues that involve our children. We need to be engaged. We need to learn what those issues are. That's why I go through each of these areas uh, where we purportedly have a legal standard that cases should be decided involving children according to the best interests of the child. But I show in situation after situation, it has become the best interest of adults rather than children that has prevailed. Many of uh, us need to be informed and change our behavior or get involved, and we may be persecuted for it, but we need to uh, count the cost going in. Jesus is pretty clear about that, that we're not to live lives as believers where we're not persecuted. He said, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. I guess that gets back to your Benedict uh, option question. You can't run away from persecution. You should face it and take it as an opportunity to turn things around and witness for the gospel. I mean, they came at Jesus with the Roman coin. Remember that? You know, is it lawful to pay taxes? There's your legal question again to Caesar. He says, says, give me one of those coins. And, you know, whose face is on it? Then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and unto God. So he he, he took their attack, as, as he always does, and he turns it into an opportunity to share the gospel and clarify people's thinking. We can do that. Every person that's listening here can do that if they equip themselves, if they pray. Uh, I hope they read my book, but read the Bible. That's a better book. (laughs) And don't back off. Say, God, I won't be afraid. I'm going on the offense here. Well, if I'm following the example that you gave, if we take contemporary times, we have an idea of America, and, we, and America has these ideals that are great and that are laudable. And then we have, if I'm following you, the application of those ideals in concrete life, in practical life, through the law and through policy, that it not always is living up to those ideals. And if I'm following you in the same way, Jesus wasn't coming to overturn the idea of God. He was coming to overturn some of the concrete policies that were being enacted in the name of God in his time. Am I following you correctly? Well, well, yes. I think uh, if you look at the treatment of passages in Matthew, uh, I put a chapter there, woe to you lawyers. Mm -hmm. While I'm quoting Jesus, (laughs) and people have said, doesn't that defeat your argument, John? No. uh, (laughs) If you look at it, it says, woe to you lawyers who put heavy burdens on people mm. and, and don't uh, lift a finger to, to uh, alleviate those bur- burdens. Law can be misapplied and is being misapplied 
all the time when people put heavy burdens on. And there was an example where Jesus defended his, his law students. The other law professor said, Jesus, your students are, are, are walking through the fields and it's the Sabbath and they, 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 uh, they snipped a piece of uh, grain off a, a head of wheat and ate it. They shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. They're breaking the law. And Jesus uh, addressed uh, a parent, uh, oh, I'm not sure what the right word is, uh, but the epitome of a conflict of law example, where, where the Pharisees had a tradition of Sabbath, and Jesus said, no, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, that really applies in our day because we have so many laws and the lawyers or the bureaucrats say, well, you've got to follow the law instead of looking at why do we have this law? The law is made to benefit us, not to suppress us. And that's, that's where Jesus the lawyer came in and that's where we as American citizen disciples need to realize that we can engage in the law. You don't have to be a lawyer. You just have to read your scripture, pray, and God will help you engage on any level, supporting Christian lawyers, uh, praying at the courthouses. Uh, there, there's a ministry that you probably know about, Courtside Ministries, that's sprung up and it's spreading like wildfire across the nation of people coming to the courthouses and just very simply setting up a table. That's, and hanging a banner out that says "Need Prayer," I don't know any fisherman who who who'd, who'd go go fishing in in the pond with no fish. In terms of evangelism and spreading the word, when people are going to court every morning at ten o'clock on Thursday, nine o'clock on Friday, they've got all kinds of problems on their heart. And if the people of God are now seeing that if we set up a table there, that's where the fish are because people line up for prayer. They say, please pray for me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with attorney John Mauck. He's based in Chicago and is a principal at the uh, law firm of Mauck & Baker. He specializes in religious land use and religious freedom litigation. We're discussing his recent book, Jesus in the Courtroom. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, everybody. If you've been following my exploits, you realize that I have a great interest in faith and science issues. And that's why I'm happy to tell you about uh, some new friends that I've made, the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Now, why I'm excited about these folks is because every every semester, in the fall and the spring, they put on what they call an advanced discussion series or an advanced seminar, and they take some topic that is important in the world of science, and they put it through a lens where they bring both scientists and theologians and New Testament people and people that talk about the various aspects of religion to talk about that subject. And so this fall, they're going to be doing a series on cancer. I know, heavy subject, but um, they're going to look at cancer from all different angles. Some of those angles are going to be scientific, and they're going to bring in cutting-edge theologians and religious thinkers to also talk about it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that if you're in the Chicago area, you feel free to stop by. It's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago down here in my neighborhood in Hyde Park. That's the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. You really should check them out. They are awesome. Now, to find out more, go online to zygoncenter.org. 
That's zygoncenter.org. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauck, a Chicago attorney who specializes in religious land use and religious freedom litigation. We're discussing his recent book, Jesus in the Courtroom, How Believers Can Engage the Legal System for the Good of His World. John, a moment ago you mentioned prayer, and I know from talking to you in the past that you have uh, had experience with people that sometimes in churches are called prayer warriors. And I'd, I wonder, first of all, if, if you would not mind uh, just sort of sharing uh, a brief story about your experience with, with prayer warriors, but then also uh, how you see prayer being an important part of the practice of law. I, I came up with the seminal idea and then worked with other believers to uh, draft a statute that would protect churches uh, from harsh zoning laws. And... That act went nowhere except to be buried in committee. I, I went and I testified before Congress about the persecution churches were facing or the, or the freeze-out that municipalities were putting on all sorts of churches. And uh, they were horrified, but the municipalities had it bottled up four years. But uh, Ted Wilkinson, prayer warrior, a pastor of an inner city church and, and leader of an organization of churches called Club Civil Liberties for Urban Believers, said, we need to pray. So he organized three prayer meetings in 1990, and they were in April, May, and June. Now, let me say these prayer meetings were fervent. There were about 100 people at each of the three inner city churches. There was an Hispanic church, a blue-collar white church, and uh, people didn't understand zoning, and a lot of them didn't understand English, but they knew God. <laughs> and they were crying out to God, and they, they knew that they wanted their churches to grow, and they wanted the gospel to spread, and God heard their prayer. In the end of July, approximately the fourth month, I called the people to the Christian Legal Society I'd been working with uh, to see if anything was happening. And these guys, and I made fun of them uh, uh, later on, a couple of Baptists said, well, there's a miracle. God did a miracle. They were shouting hallelujah on the phone. So I said, wow, what, a miracle? You don't have miracles in Congress. I said, oh, yes, yes, the law, it's passed. I said, well, wait a minute. It's, it's been bottled up for years. What happened? And it turned out that the law got passed in one day unanimously by both houses of Congress through a couple, what well, we could call them flukes if we didn't know about God, but God pushed that thing through in one, in one day despite the serious opposition. But I, I believe it was those prayers that unlocked God's power to override Congress in your book, Jesus in the Courtroom, you exhort your, your readers to do this, to, to become resistors of evil and dispensers of grace. And when I, when I read that, I, I wanted to know, what does that look like in terms of concrete action? What does that look like for the reader? How do they become a resistor of evil without becoming a zealot? How do they become a dispenser of grace without becoming a kook that nobody <laughs> wants to talk to? Yeah, you want a short answer? Sure. Well, and you're not going to get one. <laughs> Go ahead. Because <laughs> there is no short answer. Some things God gives us that we have to learn 
through trial and error, th through tears and joy and, and through wounding. Um, don't be a zealot. Well, we're supposed to be zealous for God, and we often, because of our sinful nature, will, will be overbearing or judgmental and uh, uh, not listen to other people because we, we know God, so we're to speak the truth. There are all sorts of mistakes that we can make. And at least in my case, I think I've made just about every one. And so I, I'm just glad that God's forgiven me and I've learned from that because uh, in my heart of hearts, I want people to know Jesus. I want them to be saved. You know, we have to start with our own heart and let that be God's heart in us. And then as we screw up, as we will, we need to learn from it. That's why it's, it's, not, a, it's not a short answer. It's, it's one, that's, uh, one that's learned. That's, uh, that's resisting evil. And then dispensing of grace, I think, is likewise the same way. We can, we can tell people, oh, well, that's not a problem when it is a problem and we need to speak out. Or uh, if, if somebody is really wounded by their own sin, we can say, I see, I told you so, or uh, be judgmental uh, of them rather than, than merciful. So that's something that has to be learned, too, and I think is learned through walking with the Lord. Well, the disciples walked with Jesus. We walk with Jesus. And we need to see him walking with us even as we uh, interact with evil people or, or people who are wounded and need grace or need our, our forgiveness. And then as we see ourselves responding in those situations, I I like it if there's another believer along who who we can then say, you know, Dave, did I do that right, or you think I was a little too soft or a little too tough or or whatever? And usually, if there's another believer, they can say, yeah, this was okay. That part was a little, you know, too 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 tough. But uh, that's that's the long answer. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, um, accountability and a whole lot of love. So having other people there to sort of temper you when you when you do get zealous, but also there to sort of check you when you when you get too wishy-washy. Am I hearing that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that's one of the reasons Jesus said, "Don't be or Paul said, "Don't be unequally yoked together." At our law firm, it's, it's small firm, it's uh, five attorneys, but we are accountable to each other. And we have that same vision of what does God want. I should say there's six attorneys, but our our senior partner, uh, Jesus, is not visible. <laughs> but the six of us uh, tr try to walk, and the, our senior partner tries to help us to walk his ways and 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 be accountable. If we were practicing with unbelievers. Uh, we wouldn't have that opportunity, and we couldn't grow, and our clients couldn't grow in a desire to serve God first. Well, John, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking a few minutes with us today. It's been my pleasure, too. So we've been speaking with John Mauck, and he is a senior partner at the Chicago law firm of Mauck & Baker. For nine years, he served as a board member of the Christian Legal Society, and he's currently an allied attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's also a co-host of the weekly radio show, Lawyers for Jesus. 
We discussed Malk's work in a previous Things Not Seen interview, The Miracle on Capitol Hill. In that interview, we talked about the passage of the federal law, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or ARLUPA. And John Malk has written a new book, Jesus in the Courtroom, How Believers Can Engage in the Legal System for the Good of His World. It's out this year from Moody Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dahl did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.